We're walking through Luke and Acts this year. And a part of the journey through Luke and Acts, you know that we really uh, kind of unveiled a core focus, a vision, and that is life together. And when you have a vision, that this is what we saw in the book of Acts, the first church, that they were wanting to do life together. Um, sometimes it's easy to think about that or talk about that. It's actually harder to really do, to really embody. And along the way, as we started to talk about kind of this vision, we also started to talk about, well, what are the values of our church? Uh, oftentimes people were asking uh, me, hey, what direction is this church going? And I found myself saying, hey, you know, actually we're going in a lot of different directions. Um, we're going backwards. Um, we're going forwards. We're going upwards. We're going inwards. We're going outwards. And this, this for me is crucial. I think for me, every time I look at the text now, I'll read a passage of scripture. It doesn't matter if it's in the book of Acts or Philippians. I'm constantly asking myself, all right, as I go backwards in the text, because we got to know where we came from, as I read the text, it ought to send me forward. How, how am I going to go together? Because this was never meant to be a solo sport. And too often in our individualistic Western Christian reality, we've done this. It's just me and God rather than we and God. And the question becomes is, all right, well, how does this text inform me to actually do life together? Or how does this passage of scripture actually form me, shape me to pursue the presence of God? Because God is everywhere. God is here. And how am I entering into a space aware of God's presence? For some of us, it looks like silence and solitude for a season. For some of us, it's prayer. For some of us, in our worship. But everything ought to be training us to be aware of the presence of God. That where you stand and sit is holy ground. But it's not just going forward and it's not just going upward. We also have to be the kind of Talmudim, the apprentices of Jesus, the disciples who do our work. And we do our work by going inward because none of us have arrived it doesn't matter if you're in your 60s or 70s. It doesn't matter if you're wise. It doesn't matter if you're in 20s or 30s or 40s. We all have room to become more whole and holy and spiritually healthy. And as we look at a passage of Scripture, it ought to say, hey, is there any work that needs to be done? The more attuned we are to the Spirit, the more that God will kind of show us, hey, you might need help. Maybe through a mentor, maybe through a counselor, maybe through a spiritual director, maybe through just a friend. But you're going to need someone to actually do this inner work. But all of that inner work and all of that upward work and all of that going together ought to lead us to take our pain and take our story and take our redemption and take our spiritual gifts and take whatever time and talent and treasure we have outward to showcase what the kingdom of God is all about. And so you're going to keep hearing this because I want you to get this. I want you to see this. I want you to be like, I, I can't stand looking at arrows because all I think about are the directions of this church. Because I want you to see this, know this, and embody it. Now, you also know that we've been talking in the book of Acts. The last couple of chapters and the last couple of weekends have been really, really pivotal for the kind of movement of the first church. And one of the, the questions we asked two weeks ago, and Jordan did a great job kind of even unpacking it more last week, is really around what kind of people are we? Are we temple people or are we spirit people? 
And temple people, you know, they, they got the kind of sense where everything looks good on the outside. You've got enough kind of separation from, from us and them. You, you've got certain ways that you see the world as clean and unclean. You do things that is either or. It's very dualistic thinking, but it's, it's, it's temple. And it looks good. And it looks holy. But oftentimes there is all of these walls up that are protecting you from actually being the kind of disciple in Talmudim you were always intended to be. But then there's this whole movement in that book of Acts that was talking about spirit people. It doesn't deny the beauty of the temple, but it's actually a lot more messy and requires a lot more dependency on the presence and the spirit of God. It constantly is stretching you. It's constantly uh, having you live in what we talk about often, the cognitive dissonance. It often has you kind of in the space to go, what do I trust more, the temple or the Lord? It's hard. And for many of us, we, we want to be spirit people, but we often go back to the temple because I, I, can, I can be in control. And you see the book of Acts, it just keeps, it keeps stretching and if you've been reading this week after week, you've been living in this. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but man, it is messing with me. And I've read the book of Acts numerous times. But it hasn't messed with me like the way it has going through it slowly like we have this year. You'll see in chapters 8 and 9 and today in chapter 10, you'll, you'll see that there's this kind of movement. You'll see from an Ethiopian eunuch. This is like, you know, Acts 1.8. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you in power. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the familiar Judea, which is the people you thought were less than Samaria, the people you can't stand, the ends of the earth, the people you have no desire to understand. And you all of a sudden start to see this Ethiopian eunuch getting welcomed in. Someone who seemed like he was from the ends of the earth. Um, just someone who had been pushed away. And then you saw last week, you, you see the story of even the, the persecuting Saul the, the, the king of the temple person. I am going to get this whole spirit thing and I'm going to pull it all the way back and they're going to be these kinds of people and they will never speak the name of Jesus and if i got to beat them, I'll beat them. If i got to kill them, i got to kill them. If i got to imprison them, I'll imprison them. I'll do whatever until the spirit actually hits him. And you hear that story last week and Jordan did a phenomenal job. And now this week we're going to be in the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. And I'm actually going to break it up into two weeks um, because I, I, I just feel like there is so much here. Um, you're going to learn about a Roman satyrian. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Um, I, uh, I often don't put the verses up on the screen. Why? Because I want you to be on... Uh, in the Word or on your smartphone, um, reading it. Um, but there's something powerful to me is about when we can just feel familiar with the text. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, now stop here. Um, what do you know about centurions? Uh, we often flip the classroom here. What do you know about centurions? Yes. Yeah. They were, they were, yes, they were, a, they were a captain, a sergeant, right? Um, centurion um, comes from the word like century, so they were over hundreds. Um, wh where, where else do you find centurions referenced in the Bible? 
It's two, two stories. At the cross is one of them, where, where basically you, you have the moment where the centurion goes, oh, this must be the king of the Jews. Not the king of the world, but the king of the Jews, referring to Jesus. But also the centurion. There was a moment, remember the centurion's child is sick? He comes to Jesus, and, 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 and he says, uh, as Jesus is on his way there, he goes, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to come into my house. He, I know what it's like to, to be a captain, to be a sergeant, to be over people and just say something, and then they do. I, I know you are who everyone proclaims you to be. Just say the words, and I know that my child will be healed. And, that, and literally, like, Jesus says, that kind of faith is amazing to me. He says it about a Roman centurion. This is the third kind of interaction we have of a centurion. Now, centurions um, basically started at the bottom. It's kind of like In-N-Out uh, Burger, which is undefeated, best hamburger, fast food, by far, don't at me. Now, here's the truth. What you have to know is if you ever wanted to be a, a manager at In-N-Out, you have to start at the very, very bottom. Doesn't matter if you're like the, the president's kid, you, you start at the bottom and you have to work your way up. Same thing with a centurion. You have to start as a soldier, you have to work your way up, and you have to actually build the influence, you have to build the kind of nobility, you have to build the respect of the people. So this is what this man has actually been able to do. He's part of the Italian regiment, which some scholars believe, well, he must... Um, have a little bit of Italian in him. This is this, verse 2. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, this whole idea of God-fearing, I think is really interesting. And, and what you have to understand is, like, in Greek and Roman cultures, the kind of concept of monotheism, one God, was very, very intriguing you can look back at like the, the scholarship that was written, and, and they were very intrigued with this concept of one God, but not just kind of one God. Their incredible kind of resources or books of notability were like the Odyssey and Iliad. They, they, they didn't have a book like the Bible. And what you saw is that many centurions, leaders, many, many Roman influential people were kind of like, in awe of not just this idea that we are to be about Pax Romana, the peace and security of Rome, but we actually had a book that ethically taught us how to live. And so you saw this kind of movement and merging of many, many people in Rome and in Greek cultures kind of very, very like, I like that, intrigued by it, curious. You, you'll see it written throughout the antiquities of just this sense of intrigue. And so here you have someone who's this God-fearing, who prays regularly, who gives generously. And it continues on, verse 3, one day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before me. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner. I just love how direct God is. Just like, hey, go to Joppa, find Simon. He's named Peter. I could have just said Peter, but I want you to know his name's Simon. We also call him Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house 
whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So let's go back to chapter 8. Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch goes on this week-long, month-long trek from Ethiopia to go to the temple. We talked about he was most likely not given access. He had the resources, the money he brought or bought, probably most likely um, a, a scroll of the book of Isaiah. He's reading it, and then all of a sudden Philip shows up. But he's not having a vision of an angel. He is goy, he is Gentile, he is not having the Lord speak to him. He's having a Philip, who's known as Philip the Evangelist, who's coming to him. Now in chapter 10, we have the Lord speaking to Cornelius, an angel. I mean, this is, this is like actually groundbreaking. And in this moment, giving him clear direction, just as clear direction was given to Ananias to go speak to Paul, now it's being given to a Gentile. A Gentile. Let's continue on. It says this. At the same time, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, three men, two attendants, one soldier, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, Joppa, um, I've been to this house and, um, in, in Joppa. It, it, it's amazing. But if you've ever been to the Middle East, and, and I know some of you have had the privilege to travel and experience this, um, when you were near the sea, to actually go up on the roof was a, was a space for shade. It was like a cool little breeze um, in, the, in the midst of the day or the cool little breeze towards the end of a day, um, it was actually really, really refreshing. And so majority of homes had this. This is this, that Peter went up to the roof to pray. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. We'll stop right there. Now, Jewish uh, people ate twice a day, 10 a.m., 6 p.m., Jewish people prayed at 9, 12, 3, and 6. This is typically what they did. So some apparent reason, Peter, maybe he misses the 10 a.m. breakfast, and he's hungry. So he goes up to the roof to pray. And while he is praying, he falls into a trance. A trance. Now, Cornelius has a vision. What's the difference between a vision and a dream? They're both biblical. What's the difference? Anyone? A dream is when you're sleeping. A vision is when you're awake. Okay, but, but what's the difference between a dream and a vision and a trance? Okay, let's get this even more uh, uncomfortable. Do you know what the Greek word for trance is? Ecstasy. No, I'm not saying that uh, Peter was tripping acid. I'm not saying that, okay? I'm just saying that's like what the word actually meant. But what does the word trance? And you see this used. Paul goes into a trance. We see this in the book of Acts. We see this word used in Acts 12. We see this idea. And here in the biblical definition of ecstasy was this. When you stand outside yourself. Now, you can have a vision, the Lord shows up. You can have a dream in the midst of sleeping, and then you can have a trance where all of a sudden you are here, 
but you are here. Anyone ever had that experience? Where you're in the moment. Maybe you've had one of those moments where you're in a conversation and it's like you're there, but you're actually here watching and you've almost gone somewhere else. For some of us guys who are married, um, next time your wife says, are you listening to me? Be like, ah, I was in a trance. I was in a trance. Somewhere outside my body. Now, Now, this is what's going on. Peter, he's hungry. Peter's hungry. So someone's preparing him food to eat. And he finds himself going to pray because he's a good Jewish boy. And he falls into a trance. Get this. This, is, this. this changes everything. Verse 11. He saw heaven opened. And something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. In many ways, this is like a recapitulation of Noah's Ark. And then, verse 13, then a voice told him, get up, Peter. They basically like, wake up, Peter. Come back, Peter. Kill and eat. Verse 14, Peter says, surely not, Lord. I'm a good Jewish boy, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, many of you have heard of the word kosher. And kosher really is the sense, um, you'll see this in the book of Leviticus, of what is clean to eat, if you're Hebrew, or what is not kosher, what is unclean to eat. And in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you saw a group of people who were choosing to live kosher. They were eating clean. They were not eating yak. That's what they would say. We don't eat yak. It's yak. We eat kosher. We eat clean. And when you ate clean, what it meant was, in many ways, a couple realities. One, they used it almost as a means to say, oh, this is better for our health. It's better for our health. The way it's prepared, it's better for our health. And, And in some ways, you could say yes. But more, they also use it as a way to differentiate themselves from the yuck from the unclean. And so all of a sudden, they they ate a certain way, and they didn't eat in a certain way, and the way that they did almost gave them a sense to say, oh, this is how we live. So let's, let's just test our kosher knowledge. All right? I know some of you are like, well, we're new law. We're, we're not about that. Just stay with me for a second, all right? All right. Here's the, I'm going to name an animal. you got to tell me, um, is it kosher or is it yuck? All right? You can say, yes is kosher, no is yuck. All right? A camel. Can you eat a camel? No. no. Well done. A goat? Yes. All right. Survey says. Let's get harder. An eagle? No. No. Why? Because it hunts. It hunts. That's one way to always know. You can't eat something that hunts. An ostrich? No. Good. Buzzard? No. Good. A cricket? Yes, that's right. John the Baptist, well done. Locust, yes. Rabbit, no. Can't eat the bunnies? Come on, y'all. Come on. Yuck. 
<laughs> That's just fun to say. Antelope. Yes, you can. You can eat antelope um, because they don't hunt and the way their hooves are. Hooves. Hooves. Uh, an owl. No, why? It hunts. Um, a raven. No. A falcon. A bear. A <laughs> we basically start naming NFL football teams. Um, a badger. No. An ox. A sheep. A bat. Why? Rabies. <laughs> good answer, good answer. Uh, but also, um, a rat has little hands, and you can't eat anything with little hands, which is just amazing. Um, an eel. Sushi lovers. No, you can't. Lobster, shrimp, crab, pigs. No. Deer. Gazelle. Yes. Dove. The Spirit of the Lord. Yes, you can. A bee. A bee. No. Why? It stings. That's one way. But the other reason is this. You can eat an insect, but it has... I'm just saying, this is how... You can see this in the Torah. You can, it's amazing. It has to have four legs, and then it has to have a jointing two legs that are only used for jumping. That's what you can eat. A bee has six legs, but it can't jump. It flies. Can't eat it. It's yuck. I'll give you guys an 87%. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Now, here's what I want you to understand here. And this is, this is, this is really, really important because Peter says something in the midst of the trance. He's, he's somehow outside his body. He's having this encounter, this, this kind of picture that's before him, and he's having this conversation with the Lord, and he's like, I, I, I'm not falling for this. I have never, ever allowed anything non-kosher or yuck to enter this temple. I'm good. I am holy. I am kosher. I am a temple person. This is, this, this is what he's going through. Now, do you see just some of the uniqueness that is happening here? How many people are going, being sent by Cornelius to go visit Peter? How many? Three. Okay. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times in John 20 did Jesus say, but Peter, feed my sheep. I, I love you. Three. How many times now in this trance, somehow outside his body, is God asking him to engage with a new kind of thinking? Three. Isn't it amazing how much God knows you and knows your story? And in this moment, Peter's like, I don't, know, I don't know what to do with this. Continues on. This happened, verse 16, three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, he, you know, he, he just keeps wondering about this vision. The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon the tanner's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Look at verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision. This probably connects to many of us. Like, still thinking. 
the, P- the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And next week we're going to finish the story. But I, I, um, I want you to see two things. Number one is this. And... Um, Leonard, Leonard taught me something recently. I, I, I didn't have this kind of language. And some of you in the hospitality haven, you, you, you heard this. But when it came to intimacy within the Jewish people, first and foremost, intimacy between God. But, the, the, but when it came to kind of um, horizontally with people, that kind of intimacy first was connected between a marriage, sexual, physical intimacy. The second most intimate place was around the table in the ancient Near East. That something happened around the table. And to be a Jewish boy, a Jewish girl, you were trained at an early age. You will never enter the house of a goy. It's yuck. What they will provide at the table will be yuck. You do not enter in there. And what Peter is wrestling with right now in this moment is, are you saying that they're not yuck? And uh, am I going to break everything I've ever known to enter into a place that I've always been taught was unholy and unclean and impure? And this is what we're going to see what happens when Peter actually goes through this but then also what it does within the religious people around him. We're going to talk about this. Some of the most horrific, horrific, evil times of our country is when we had this kind of thinking. Can't drink from this drinking fountain. Can't eat with this group of people at your house or in your table. And that level, we look back and we go, there's no... We can look back maybe at Peter's day and go, there's no way. But then we look back maybe 60 years ago, and that was happening 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Arizona was the last state that actually approved of Dr. Martin Luther King Day, and that was in the 80s. So we we start thinking about some of this, like, sense of, like, segregation and and separation and the sense that for many of us, man, we have this this kind of sense of what is kosher, what is not. We just have our own words for it. What is clean and what is yuck, we just have our own words for it. And what Leonard Davis taught me was that we, it's because we all have a moral circle. And inside this moral circle is oftentimes where we can show kindness And kindness, actually in this moral circle, kindness comes from the word kin, family, tribe, people who we think are in this family. And then people who are outside, we might not say it out of our mouths, but they are unclean, non-kosher, yuck. And this is what we're going to go after next week and, and what that happens when we break through that. And then what happens when obviously people wonder, why are you doing that? But that's not where I want to go today. And um, I want to tell you about a time I had a trance. 
And um, I was talking to a friend of mine um, a couple weeks ago. She goes here. She hadn't been for a couple weeks, and um, she said something to me, and it really, um, it really hit different. Um, she said, uh, Steve, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I could show up because I think if I show up, I would just start weeping. And I was like, why? And she's like, I, I just don't think um, I could bring my mess. And, and something hit me. She wasn't saying this, but what I was feeling was like, oh, man, we've created a temple community. And, and to be honest, um, do you ever have moments of your life where it's easy to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't have this like kosher, clean, unclean. I don't, I don't have that in my life. It's easy. It's easy because we, we might say it like those people do, but we don't often want to look at it. But, but maybe, 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 maybe if you could just stay with me, you might not have that outside you, but do you actually have it for parts that, have, that are within you? Maybe parts that you've just thought were unclean that you've not wanted to give attention to. And I talk about this inward journey and I talk about therapy and I talk about spiritual direction because um, it's important. In 2020, the weekend before COVID happened, I was speaking in Indianapolis and I'd spoken four out of five weekends. I had done a series and I, it, it like worked. I, I, I mean, um, I, I hadn't had that kind of traction um, in a season. And I was leaving. It was the, the, the fifth weekend, the weekend before COVID where the world shut down. I, I, I was feeling good. I felt the thrill of God using me. I'm walking in the airport. Someone's like, Rock Shazak. And I'm like, oh, Rock Shazak. I'm like walking. People are like high-fiving me. I'm like, I love Indianapolis. Airport's small. They got Chick-fil-A. It's closed on Sunday. But I love Indianapolis. This is fantastic. And I, I'm just like chopping with people in the airport. This was, it just felt good. And then I'm, I'm in the TSA line. And I'm waiting. And finally it comes up and my, uh, my, my name, scan, license, go through, take my shoes off, my belt off, take my laptop out, put it in. And I walk through and I have a moment where it dings. The guy looks at me and he says, um, we could do this here. We could do this in another room. And I'm like, ah, oh, you go to Northview. He's like, what the heck is Northview? He didn't say heck. But he's like, what the heck's Northview? And I was like, oh, this is real. He's like, yeah, man, it's real. And um, I'm like, okay, yeah, we can do this here. So I stand here, no shoes on, black jeans, black sweater, hands out. And let me just say one thing then. The TSA guy didn't do anything wrong. He was doing his job. There's no shade here. He, he was doing his job. Um, but he began to kind of pat down my body. And in this moment, I um, had a memory when I was nine. And um, I had this memory where I'm standing here and this man is doing this work, his job. And I have this moment where I am outside of my body, back is a nine-year-old, 
at this camp. And what do I do? I start walking away, which you should never do from a TSA person. And I start grabbing my shoes, and the guy's like, what are you you doing? I'm like, I got to get the heck out of here. He's like, man, you can't leave. Put down your shoes. And, and I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I'm thinking people are like watching and I'm having this full-on panic attack. And I'm like, I just have to get out of here. Because I didn't even know that this memory, I didn't even know that this thing happened. I didn't know. I get through TSA after 15 minutes. I sit on, the, on a bench and I call my wife and I'm like, something happened and it took me right back. And I, all of a sudden, these parts to my story started to make sense. And they started to like come together. And I'll say like for two and a half years, I have not touched that. Partly because Sunday was always coming. And I only can open up so much before, Close it up and get ready to teach. Open up, close it up, lock it up, gotta teach. And you're constantly, for 20 some years, been in this energy management game, energy management game, energy management game. Gotta open it up, gotta lock it up, gotta go teach. Gotta open it up, gotta lock it up, gotta go teach. Why I do counseling at 12 p.m. on Mondays religiously, because it gives me the most amount of time to open it up, to lock it up, have enough energy to go. And that is the most temple thinking is humanly possible. And it's taken me three years. And um, I have not wanted to face it. And on um, Wednesday night, I flew um, to back to Phoenix. Um, and I sat with my counselor for an intensive and we walked through it all. And it's amazing how many pieces that I can look at myself and go, I don't have clean and unclean thinking, which I'm sure I do, but I have clean and unclean thinking when it came to me. And there are parts of me that I didn't want to actually go after. There's parts of me that I didn't want to wonder, I didn't want to actually deal with, I didn't want to be messy in front of, I didn't want to actually have to trust, I didn't want to be vulnerable. And uh, even in this moment, I feel like I'm like just holding it all. And um, when I think about Peter, When I think about some of us who maybe have experienced abuse, for some of us who have just experienced profound betrayal or experienced grief, and you have that moment where you find yourself just a little bit outside, the real question is going to be what kind of community will we be? Will we do the work? Or will we just put it back in the box and just lock it up and be like, ah, ah, I can just manage it, I can 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 manage it. 
And what you're starting to see in the book of Acts is that the spirit of God is unmanageable. A better word is unpigeonholable. You, you cannot. You can resist the healing and you can resist the forward movement and you can resist the wholeness and you can resist facing trauma and you can resist facing the grief and you can resist facing the change. You can resist it. Here's the real question for you today. Because Peter right now is going, I did it the right way. I did it the way I was taught. I did it the right way. I did it. I did it. I did it. And God's like, I know, I know, I know, bud. I know, I know, I know. This is not about you. This is not about you. This is not your, this is not, a, this is about so much more and you're a part of it. It's about your wholeness. It's about you seeing as God sees. It's about you embodying the way my son lived. It's about you walking actually in freedom and not just talking about it, but actually being about it. And here's my ask. I don't want us to be a nice, clean, have it all together community. I want us to be a community that can say, oh my gosh, just falling apart. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I, I don't know where I am financially. Addiction's caught me again. I, I just want this to be a place where we have to rely not on the temple, but we have to rely on the spirit and we actually have to rely on each other. Because without that, what's, what's really the point of getting up and coming here in the morning? Everywhere else we can pretend. Everywhere else we can manage. But what if here was the place that we could see a more compelling vision that we can be honest, human, with the stuff that if we said it out loud could make us start weeping and the stuff where we could celebrate the good that God is doing in our midst shade, without shame, but just with space. And I don't know what that means for you, but I hope that you always know that you can come in here, and if you weep, we'll weep with you. If you're struggling, I'm sure I can introduce you to someone who's struggling more. place that will see you and a place that will care and a place that will hold space and we won't always do it right but we'll try and we'll keep trying and part of the inward work is simply this that I'm learning is every day it's an invitation to make a decision against myself against my own agenda my own managing, my own protecting, my own preserving, my own and stepping more and more into the man that God made me to be. And that's the invitation for all of us. The woman, the man, the person that God made you to be free, honest, 
filled with grace, broken and beautiful. So I pray these words over us today. God, you know in my heart, there's so many times I just want to leave a message where people are standing and clapping and cheering. And I don't even feel comfortable sometimes in these kinds of vulnerable spaces. God, I pray, I pray that what you were doing in that church in Acts and the expansion, that you were inviting us to see not with the world's eyes, but to see with your eyes, to see each other with your eyes, to see ourselves with your eyes. And so God, I just pray, I pray over this space for my brothers and sisters who are walking through it. Who are feeling it. Who somehow feel outside of themselves like I do not know what to do. God, I pray that before they would leave this place, they would allow themselves to be seen, that they would make a decision against themselves, maybe ask for prayer, or choose a, a sense of vulnerability with a brother or sister beside them. church that does life together, that invites people into our moral circle, that expands it to have more of a kingdom circle, not just for them, but honestly more for us. I love you, God. I know my friends here do too. We trust you. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen.